When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdeljabar. What's up, brother? How are you? Chilling, man, as per usual. Good to see you again so quickly. Yeah, um, so a quick warning. So we're, we're sorry for the delay in episodes. Um, you know, with everything breaking out in Russia and Ukraine, we had to wait for our Russian handler to, to give us <laughs> the narrative we're supposed to spin. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if things are busy in Moscow obviously. So we had to wait for Dimitri to get in contact with us and, and tell us what to say, because, you know, we speak on behalf of the Russian government. But um, ju- just kidding. So this is what happened. We had actually recorded our our follow-up episode to the Korean War. So we, we did an episode on um, the, the, um, the rise of Sigmund Rhee in South Korea, and that was set to be released on Monday. And then... On Sunday, things really started to escalate uh, between in, in Ukraine, and uh, we were like, okay, so you know, we we actually should prioritize putting out an episode on on Russia Ukraine instead. So we delayed this episode. Uh, we d- delayed our next South um, North. Excuse me. We delayed our Korean War follow up. Our our next episode in our Korean War series. We're gonna drop that hopefully on Monday. Of next week, and, and today we're going to talk about the update between Russia and Ukraine in the Donbass, and Putin recognizing um, Luhansk and Donetsk, and all of that, and the implications, Putin's speech, and um, you know everything that is uh, that is relevant. And I'm sure after a couple of days, this is released, everything we say will be irrelevant again. <laughs> yeah. Now. Um, I want a fair warning right now. I'm actually recording. I'm on back on the Pilates machine. <laughs> so um, a couple of weeks ago, actually, we were talking about the same exact thing. We were talking. This was this was in December around Christmas time, and um, we were we were recording a podcast on the same subject on on um, on Ukraine and Russia, and um, I was podcasting on a Pilates machine, which I'm doing again right now. I'm you not need to stop so. You need to stop going to Chicago, man. Every time you do, yeah. things escalate. <laughs> yeah, every single time I go to Chicago, shit hits the fan. Um, but no, it's great. I'm actually seeing uh, my new niece and Congratulations. my, my one year old nephew. So everything is good here. But um, yeah, um, also, fair warning audio might sound like crap. We don't know yet. Just want to give you some fair warning. Uh, we might have to use Skype audio for that. We're hoping we're not going to have to use Skype audio, but. Um, you know, who, who knows what's going to happen with the internet and, uh, with our, with our, uh, internet connections, as far as like the podcasting software we use. So, uh, bear with us right here. It may not be the best episode audio wise, 
And um, yeah, Danny, how are you? Sorry for rambling and, and boring everyone with with uh, with minor stuff. No, dude, you're good. You're good. Uh, and, and I guess I, one of the first things we can just jump right in, to be honest. And I feel like you know we've we intentionally delayed so we can get more information. But as a result, there's just so much information, and it's hard to really corroborate a lot of it. So you know, full disclosures like things that we say today, as you already said before, might not be relevant in a couple of days, but also we might get some stuff wrong um, just because of the nature of, of the developing situation here. So this, I feel like is going to be more conversational and less history. Um, and we're going to try to figure it out, I think together, or at least just kind of talk through and have a conversation about, you know, what are the implications of what just happened? What could be on the horizon? And, you know, how, how, how do we make sense of it all? So uh, the first thing I wanted to start off by saying is, is just, you know, a couple episodes ago when the last time we were talking about Russia and Ukraine, you know, I was definitely on the, on the side of the argument that, you know, uh, purported that, that Russia wouldn't uh, go ahead and, and invade. And I guess, you know, we were talking about this just before we started recording, Henry, but even though they're not technically invading yet, and we'll get well, into they the, technically invaded, but it's not... The invasion that we were primed invasions. for, right? Exactly. It's it's we were different. we were primed for like some massive orc horde, you know, coming through the lines into the Ukraine and sacking Kiev and killing every last man, woman, and child. That's, That's right. That's definitely and not that, what that happened. That could still it could still happen, right? But, <laughs> so but yeah, technically, you know, I guess Russian peacekeepers are going yeah. into um, the breakaway republic. So you could say right. technically that is an invasion, um, right. in a legal sense. I'm sure you you can say that. And there's arguments on both sides for it as well, you know. So I just wanted to, like, point that out, you know, for those who listen consistently. Like, I was definitely, you know, wrong about what exactly panned out. But, like, who could have known, you know, what exactly was going to happen? And and I think what's kind of important about some of this is that I still think that we caught on to some of the signs, right? I think the signs are pretty important. You know, my, my main argument before was that Russia would either attempt to annex the Donbass region, or at least create the conditions uh, for an independent uh, LNR or DPR, uh, and and you know one that would be aligned with Russia. And I came to this conclusion by comparing how Crimea was annexed and how Russia came to occupy some parts of Georgia. And so there were these common trends that we were discussing in those episodes. Things like, in particular, the process of passportization, which is when Russia was issuing passports to. Russian-speaking or Russian-identifying uh, people in both Ukraine and Crimea. And, th- and those things are true and have been going on in the Donbass for months, even years, right? So those trends were there. So that was kind of like the, the tell, you know, and, and my assumption was that the least painful play that Russia can do would be a referendum in Donbass, uh, you know, to legitimize its annexation or legitimize the breakaway I still think that's on the table in some capacity, but uh, I think it would largely be symbolic, as Russia has already basically declared the you know recognition of the independence of the LNR or the DPR. Um, maybe they use it as damage control later, you know, uh, you know, for unilaterally recognizing a breakaway state. But you know, I also pointed out that there was a bunch of troops, and and that I believed that they were there mostly as tripwire, you know, basically like don't fuck around. Uh, because we've got military here. Um, I still think that was true then, but it's not super true now, or at least that that is changing. And, you know, I, I, I did mention that there's got to be a good reason, you know, to move all these troops there because it's crazy expensive and it's a logistical nightmare. Uh, so you just don't do it just for the lulls. Uh, 
And I feel like now we're at least starting to get a reason why he moved all those troops over there. And yeah. Well, well, Danny, let me let me stop you right now, just because in case someone um, who is listening to this, um, maybe in the future, I just want to kind of explain where we're at right now and what where we're recording. We're recording on Tuesday, February 22nd. Uh, it's about nine or yeah, it's about nine o'clock Eastern Standard Time. So earlier this week on Monday, uh, Putin signed a decree recognizing the sovereignty of the breakaway republics of the Donetsk and Luhansk uh, DPR and LPR. And then he ordered Russian peacekeeping operations um, in, in those in the breakaway republics. And under these new treaties with the breakaway republics, Russia is able to build military bases in the Donbass region. The Donbass region is eastern Ukraine, mainly Russian speaking. And, you know, that's where the, the two breakaway republics are located. And there's been a war, um, you know, a low level war for the past eight years. In the beginning, it was a high level war, but it kind of escalated, it de-escalated into a low level war with occasional spouts of violence between uh Ukrainian, uh, mainly Ukrainian nationalist forces and Russian separatist forces. Um, and then, you know, the Russian separatist, uh, excuse me, the Russian, uh, the Ukrainian nationalists, you, you know, there, there are Ukrainian National Guard, there are elements, the majority of it is, you know, just, you know, young people, uh, probably around 20% of that National Guard is encompassed with, with uh, fascist uh, right-wing groups um, that are you know, pretty scary and pretty violent. Um, and then, on the Russian side, you have uh, you know Russian separatists have been tacitly supported by by Russian special forces, um, but you know. And, and to military... be clear about that, it's 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 separatist forces in Donetsk and Luhansk. Yeah. So they're they're Russian aligned, but and I guess technically maybe they are Russian citizens, uh, but that's that's a that's a different conversation. We'll get to that, yeah. I guess. <laughs> but um, but you know, right now it's not clear if the Russian troops will try to push Ukraine out of uh, the, the claimed territory or if they're going to uh, just be deployed to the line of control. Um, you know, the buffer zone that was set by the, 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 the Minsk agreement, we're not sure if they're going to, uh, to uh, you know, ex- extend outward uh, past that buffer zone that was set by the Minsk um, that was originally set to, to create a ceasefire in the Donbass in 2015. One of the problems is that the Ukrainian separatists, they don't control all the territories that they claim in Donbass. You know, it's the, I guess legally they, they, these are the regions, how they're drawn up, but they don't actually have control over all of these areas. Uh, and so Russia is recognizing full autonomy or, uh, you know, full recognition of those uh, areas that the LPR and DPR, what's like officially in their documentation, Right. Um, but even but, that is a little bit like hazy because the yeah. the, bor- the borders of what would constitute a Donetsk and Luhansk, like an independent one, aren't super clear, you know? And and yeah. I don't think the Russians have been super clear about what, what they recognize as the borders of, of the DPR and the LPR, respectively. Yeah. And what immediately caused this was a renewed call by the DPR and the LPR for Russian recognition and military assistance um, amid a spike in violence that has um, really violations through the Minsk agreement that, that was supposed to, to um, you know, stop violence and start and stop things like artillery shelling and things like that. Now, 
both sides are claiming false flag. Um, you know, I, I honestly refuse to really believe anything I hear on the ground right now because I feel like pretty much everything I'm getting is, I don't really have reliable sources, um, in the breakaway republics right now. Most of what I've been watching has either been tilted way, way towards NATO's favor or way, way towards Russia's favor. So yeah, there's, there's I'm no really not confident. Yeah, yeah there, I'm not, not. I don't really believe anything I'm seeing on the ground. So who knows? Like maybe, maybe what they're saying is right. There were Russian false flags. Maybe, maybe they were uh, Ukrainian uh, forces who were doing the shelling. You know, there was a kindergarten that was uh, that had a sh- uh, that was shelled. That's really what sparked this conversation right now. When Biden was saying that, or when the Biden administration was saying that there was going to be a false flag, that's what they jumped out and said immediately. That's the false flag. You know, Russia launched a, uh, you know, they they blew up a kindergarten, and that's what they're going to be using as as a as a pretext to do a full a full scale invasion in Ukraine. Maybe you know, maybe that's true. I, I honestly don't know. Maybe that will come out that. There were Russian forces behind this, but I can I can see just as uh, likely that these were these were Ukrainian uh, security forces who who did this. Um, I wanna, feel like. Do you want to flesh that out though? Because uh, I think it would now be a good time to talk about that shelling, uh, or do you want to talk about that later? Which shelling? The one in the the school. Yeah. So there was a shelling, and I haven't really looked that deep into this. To, to I haven't honestly tried to see who did what yet i've just kind of taken everything with a grain of salt and and uh and uh just assumed that i honestly my first assumption that it was it was ukrainian nationalist forces and i'm really just giving nato the benefit of the doubt or the ukrainians the benefit of the doubt which i probably shouldn't give them the benefit of the doubt <laughs> yeah you gotta I, be careful with giving, that. i'm just giving them the benefit of the doubt right now but i don't i don't really know there was a kind there was a a kindergarten that or a school a school building that there was a shelling and um it was all over the news both sides were claiming the other side blew it up um no no one was hurt in there thank god there was no children that were hurt but it you know that was that was used as a pretext to really uh launch the the increased i'm, I'm, I'm with you on heat not really, on this i'm with you on not really believing you know what's on the ground and and i haven't yet chosen who i believe was the perpetrator there but i almost don't think that you know the who really matters in this respect i think the you know the implications behind it on both sides is more important and it's easier to to talk about as well you know when you say that you know the biden administration was was jumping at the you know chomping at the bit so to speak when when they got this report about you know the the shelling of that school and saying, aha, there's your false flag, right? The Russians blew up a school and, uh, you know, they're, they're going to pretend like we did it or the Ukrainians did it to give them justification. And, and I think talking about that justification and that narrative is important or just as important as the who who did it because it, it helps you to understand what moves are being taken and what moves could be taken going forward. So when when the Biden administration says the Russians did it, and they're going to use it as, as um, you know, their incentive or their causes belie to, you know, to, to do an invasion. Basically, what they're saying is that Russia is going to pin the blame on this school uh, uh, and the shelling of this school on Ukrainians or the West or literally anyone, right? And use that as as a reason to say, hey, look, 
look how fucked up these people are. They're shelling schools. Like, we need to go in and save the Russian people. I think that's super important, right, to kind of think about. And, and, and that what that's not the only violation, though. There was a lot of violations. Of course, but this is just the one that's violations. like on That was the one yeah. that, that kicked kicked everything off. That got off. on the news, you know? Yeah, that got on the that was printed in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And um but here's here's what makes me think that, that was like that was a false flag. What makes me think it was a false flag is because the Biden administration over and over is like there's gonna be a false flag, there's gonna be a false flag. When you hear about an attack in one of these uh, separatist regions, that means it was a false flag. That means the Russians did it. Which makes me think that maybe they did it. <laughs> yeah. Like, right? like why would you keep on why, how would you know that there was going to be a false flag? It's like he who smelt it dealt it before yeah, whoever, it was dealt. Which makes me trust them <laughs> you know? less, the fact that they kept on saying that, hey, when there's when you hear about this like awful thing that happens, it was actually the Russians pretending to be Ukrainian security forces so they can pretext their invasion. So it did that, that um, which which wouldn't surprise me. But it honestly wouldn't surprise me the other way around as well if, if it was Russian. Um, you know, either either... Either scenario seems like a possibility. To be fair, for the last like week or more, both sides have been saying they're going to do a false flag. They're going to do a false flag. Yeah. You know? So so while while I totally agree with you, it makes me feel like mad sketch about uh, you know whether or not you know the Ukrainians or the West shelled this school. At the same time, Russians have been saying the same thing, and the separatists have been saying the same thing. Like, oh, they're preparing a false flag. They're preparing to you know, do something to blame it on us. You know? Yeah. So, well, the separatists obviously want to draw Russia in right. to the conflict. Mm-hmm. So there, there is a motivation on the separatist side to show and the school. The Ukrainian <laughs> national forces, like the Ukrainian security forces, they obviously want to pull in the West, NATO, into the conflict. They want so a there's reaction obviously, from NATO. Exactly. So there's obviously a, a motivation on the Ukrainian side, you know? So, yeah. so, so there's, there's obviously, yeah, there's a, there's a motive on both sides. Both sides. But which is, what was which is interesting. What makes this, sorry, go ahead. Oh yeah, we're on Skype, so we might talk over a little bit. Um, someone on, on our Patreon sh- uh, shared with us a a picture of some of the separatists, and one was pretending to lose his leg. Yeah. Did you see that? And then I did. it was actually yeah. you could see the prosthetic attached, uh-huh. so it looked like it was staged. A lot of a lot of things that I saw from the. Uh, out of the separatist camp uh seemed kind of staged yeah yeah just, I mean, just so bird's eye bird's eye view they're they're basically just on both sides frankly they're basically trying to find their reason to get their end goal achieved right and you, yeah. you outlined it perfectly the the separatists want russians to come in and save them and and prop them up and the ukrainians want the west to come in and save them and prop them up right and and, yeah. and in that respect, I kind of feel like, you know, if we're talking about specifically Russia and the U.S., I don't think either country wants to do anything in, in, in particular. I think they're kind of feeling like they're forced to, both sides, frankly. Uh, and, and that's what makes this, like, reporting on this and, and talking about this so hard because because there are so many motives. You know, this this feels like, a, like an ongoing murder trial, you know? And we're putting all these witnesses on the stand and there's just almost an equal amount on both sides of motivation to do wrong. So it just makes yeah. it that much harder. 
Well, what's interesting is that the sanction, the the West, the the response from the White House really wasn't that bad. Yeah, it was pretty measured. It was pretty um, light compared to what they were saying would be the consequences if there was a Russian invasion, right? Because mm-hmm. this is I'm, I'm all the papers I'm reading. What's coming out of uh, mainstream press is that this this counts as the invasion and. They yeah, said the language Biden said that there would basically be hell to pay. You know, we wouldn't we wouldn't act militarily, but there'd be horrible sanctions. And the sanctions that I saw really weren't that bad. They did automatically sanction the the DPR and the LPR. So right. you know they they're they can't do business with America. However, that goes without saying. <laughs> that goes without saying because it, they don't recognize them as states. But uh, as far as like the sanctions on Russia, they didn't really seem that serious. Now, the most serious thing to come out of it, and this is probably the U.S. making Germany do this, right. is uh, that uh, Olaf Scholz, he halted the certification of the Nord Stream pipeline mm-hmm. that is supposed to bring natural gas from Russia to Germany. Right. Which means, this sucks if you're German. This means it sucks if you're European prices. in general, because it's yeah, not just—Germany ge- was just the, res- the on the receiving end, but a lot of that gas continues on. Yeah, this this sucks if you're a European because uh, it basically means higher energy prices and higher inflation, and um, it looks like the the Germans are putting U.S. interests ahead of of, of uh, German people. Well, I mean, talk about another party that doesn't want to get involved. I mean, Germany and specific specifically Schultz, you know, the, the the chancellor there, he they didn't want to get involved. They they even said were they, they were. Hmm. He was very not clear about whether or not uh, the the pipeline would be on the table as far as the sanction goes. And that was kind of like a last-minute audible that they just pulled. I'm sure somebody got on the phone with him from the United States, probably the State Department. I doubt Biden called him. But um, that, that was pressure applied. They didn't want to get involved. They didn't even want to send weapons to Ukraine. They wanted to be largely neutral, you know? So, I, I, again... I think this is is kind of wild because you know these on the ground forces both the ukrainians and the separatists are doing everything they can in their power to get what they want and it seems to be working well let's pull this back we we were talking about this the other day a couple up like a month ago the last time we spoke about russia and ukraine that but olaf schultz comes from the social democratic party in russia and they have Mm -hmm. they have a long tradition of supporting better relationships with Russia. Mm-hmm. And from what it seemed like, he, he's their new chancellor. It seemed like he was going to continue that transition. He refused to give Ukraine lethal aid. So when the West was giving them you know, Tomahawk missiles, they were giving them helmets. And uh, the mayor of Kiev you know, made this, this uh, joke. It's like, oh, well, why don't you give us pillows? Right, why don't or you send some pillows so, next? Right? Why don't you send some pillows next? My pillow guy coming in. He's like, I got Here's you. my pillow. I'll send you some pillows. I'll send you some pillows. <laughs> Just use this promo code. MyPillow.com, Mike Lindell. <laughs> but this, the Social Democratic Party, for a long time, it's it's been the more, uh, I want to work with Russia type party. Mm-hmm. And... When they 
were trying to they also froze lethal aid coming in from Estonia as well and right. the media coverage over the past month or so when this episode was going on when when Germany seemed soft on on Russia the media was killing them like every single article in, in the in, in the in the corporate press from from NPR to the New York Times was like oh Germany is dark history supporting you know, Germany has a dark history with with hard decisions and you know going into also like the Holocaust and stuff like that like every single they were so, they were just kind of really hitting them from the right saying that they were so weak and that you know they were abandoning NATO and their NATO commitments and all of that which totally frustrates me because when we talked about this last time you know I made the the assertion that I feel like non-lethal aid in the form of helmets and they also were going to provide some field hospitals was probably the best thing that Germany can provide at that time. Because when you think about it, there are legitimately Nazis in the Ukrainian army. That's a thing, yeah. right? Can you imagine, just just think for a moment, you're Germany, specifically, you're Olaf Schultz. You just got the chancellorship. And one of the first things you do is send weapons to some Nazis? Like, set aside the implications of, like, you know, Ukraine is a sovereign nation and they're being invaded, yada, yada, right? Just think about, politically speaking, the optics of that. You're the guy that sent guns to the Nazis in Ukraine. Like, that's kind of a hard decision to make. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so in, in a way... The decision to not send lethal aid and even block lethal aid in the form of Estonia was kind of like the right move, in my opinion. Well, and God, nobody covers that. Like, this is something that's not really covered in any corporate press outlet that the people mm -hmm. that were that I'm not saying that the entire the entirety no. of Ukraine is filled with Nazis. I'm not even saying right. that's Neither the majority or the plurality mm -hmm. of people who serve right. in the Ukrainian uh, security forces are neo-Nazis. But right. probably the, one of the most influential, if not the most influential backbone of it, they're, they're um, you know, the sons, the grandsons of the people who collaborated with the Germans during World War II. And it wouldn't, we're, we're not honestly, being hyperbolic when we say it, this. Yeah, it wouldn't matter either how how much of an impact there, the Nazis in Ukraine are to the Nazi, uh, to the Nazi, to the Ukrainian military, because I mean, think about it, just politically, put it in the context of the United States. Imagine if, I don't know, we decided to arm some, you know, country, and that country had even some KKK members in that country that were in the military. Like, imagine politically speaking, Biden having to make the decision whether or not to arm to potentially arm or at least have the optics of potentially arming a bunch of KKK members. Right. And, and I just want to prove that, like, I just want to prove that we're not being hyperbolic. You know, we're not being, we're not, um, um, you know, the young Turks calling anyone who's, uh, who's right of, uh, George Bush a Nazi. Like we're not being right. like hyperbolic lefties. Like we're, we're saying that these are actual, um, you know, uh, white, green, like, white, white supremacist, neo-Nazi groups. 
that like flying the flag flagrantly flying flying the doing, i guess not technically well sometimes yeah they do hold the swastika the, the uh no, the swastika there's a picture but, in, in 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 patreon about it just like literally an hour ago or but two hours ago for, for anyone who doubts this just go to swastone.com s-v-a-s-t-o-n-e.com this is the yeah. outfitter of uh the azov battalion's uniforms and just look at their website and um tell me that this is not some like weird white supremacist i'm actually on the website right now and i feel kind of weird on it right now um but there's a bumper sticker white girl on board like all just weirdo white supremacist stuff like all over this website and this is one this is like the a clothing line there um a ukrainian clothing line they outfit the azov battalion it's it's um it's weird stuff so it's not hard to find the evidence. I mean, the clothing line is one thing. It's not yeah. hard to find evidence. That that's just an easy there. example. But yeah, you can find you can find it's all sorts hard. of examples. Just Google of, it. Like it's can, it's it, they're not very quiet about it. And, and no, a good place to read about it would be actually BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed is actually out of all places, and this is why I actually give uh, BuzzFeed their BuzzFeed News some. They've written some horrible articles, like some really stupid stuff about Russiagate, but they've also. I've done some pretty good articles about the FBI and um, uh, specifically right-wing groups, but they actually trace some right-wing groups in America and how they go to Ukraine to get training with um, these these groups like uh, like the Fatherland and Right Sector and Svoboda Gang and all like these real um, fascistic militia groups in in ukraine that that participated in the euro maiden in 2014 that helped um overthrow the uh, democratically elected you know pro or more pro uh ukrainian president you know so it's it's um you really have to question we live in a world where the liberal left side of of, of american politics right now and i'm not saying like the the leftist side i'm saying like the liberal left kind of uh, mainstream side they call everyone nazis but at the same time their policies is to support nazis broad which is just mind-boggling it's um it's this it's, is also this is also a point that putin brings up in the speech that he made recently yeah i want to get to that put a pin in, put a pin in that because i actually wrote yeah. some notes on this because it was yeah, very sure. that speech on putin that speech that putin delivered wild. was very interesting and uh, wild. I've never seen him. Well, actually, no. I, he, he's actually delivered a lot of, of uh, he, he, he's pretty articulate. And whenever he's trying to make a point, he always brings up a lot of histories. But um, I put a pin in that because I want to go over that uh, in, sure. in more detail. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. 
We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. But so coming back to this, right? Yeah, let's coming go back, back to, to Germany, Germany with, with right? the Nord Stream pipeline and, and um, the, them canceling the, the project. And um, it, I, so part of me thinks that they're just doing this because there is it's going to be if they don't suspend it right away while the press is on this then they're immediately going to get all this press from like the Atlantic Council they're how Germany is collaborating with like an enemy of the west and all this stuff and we need to rethink our NATO NATO membership and you know um, they're probably scared of like direct action from US policy um so maybe they're just hoping that cuz they they don't want to do this no one wants to do this you know when Apparently, Putin, when there was that uh, meeting, I think it was on Sunday or was it on Monday, when uh, Macron met with Putin and then Putin told him over the phone, I think that was Monday morning, that he was planning on recognizing the breakaway republics of the DPR and the LPR. They were like, man, they were like, they were basically like, fuck, we didn't want him to do this. We really don't want this to escalate any further. Um so I'm wondering if they're just going to um, kind of wait it out and then resuspend the Nord Stream because I mean they've invested billions and billions of dollars. Like most of the money that's been invested in the Nord Stream pipeline has been from German corporations. It, I think I think um, Russia's probably paid for about twenty percent of it. The vast majority of it comes from is coming from uh, German investments, and when inflation hits, when when there's higher gas prices, especially in the winter, that's going to be very politically politically unpopular for Schultz. So, I part of me thinks that they're just going to try to wait this out and, and uh, get back to business, maybe in like a month, or maybe there's some type of of a handshake deal or under the table deal that's made later on. I'm not sure. I, I don't really know enough about German politics, but um, it's it hard just, for me to balls, think Balls that. in Russia's corner at this point right now. I think yeah. that you're, you're absolutely right. They didn't want to do this. They just did it because political pressure, um, you know, pressure from NATO, pressure from the UNES, pressure from the media, and also just, you know, frankly, they feel at this point, just like a lot of other countries do, that like Russia crossed the line and not doing something is akin to basically allowing it to happen, right? 
So they, they just kind of have to. That gut knee-jerk reaction that says, like, that Macron had as an example, like, oh, fuck, don't tell me you're about to do that, you know, is, is exactly the response that we're getting out of it. But as far as, like, the rest of the sanctions go, the U.S. mother of all sanctions against, against Russia, things that I'm seeing are pulling them out of, you know, uh, uh, specific trading in the U.S. So they, they Russia cannot trade uh, and state-owned institutions can't trade with or in U.S. markets, uh, which is, it's a pretty big blow in, in some ways, but it's not an immediate one, you know? They're not going to really reel tomorrow because they can't do some trading. Um, and it was also probably a little bit of a letdown because that was what everyone knew that they were going to do, right? So I feel like Biden and the Biden administration have been hyping up this, like, we're going to put crazy-ass sanctions down, like, the worst sanctions you've, they've ever had, right? And then they just do something that was just, like, straight out of every playbook, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, like, okay, cool. Now, they did do specific sanctions on people as well, which was interesting, but I still don't, I, I don't see how, how it's relevant. So, you know, they sanctioned Russian, quote-unquote, elites. So there's a lot of them. A couple of them are, like, uh, the Federal Security Service Director, the FSB director, uh, his name is Alexander uh, Bortnikov, and they also uh, sanctioned the chairman and chief of um, a public joint stock company that I can't pronounce, <laughs> uh, and that's Peter Fradkov. Um, and they also hit Sergei um, Kirinenko, uh, which is the former prime minister of Russia. Uh, notably, I didn't read anything about sanctioning Putin himself. So they can't sanction Putin. They can't. Well, what you know, I, someone I actually heard I read this somewhere where they were going to try to find out where his money is, but there's no way they can find mm -hmm. out where his money is. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's not necessarily whether or not they can like logistically sanction him. It's more about like, can they symbolically sanction him? You know, and I haven't read anything that says we're also sanctioning Putin specifically, you know, and it's funny that they're like. Oh, all these guys here. They said, um, Biden said that, and I'm going to quote him here, they share in the corrupt gains of the Kremlin policies and should share in that pain as well. And, and he's talking about the Russian elites that they sanctioned. So it's like, okay, so shouldn't Putin also suffer that pain? <laughs> well, 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 here's the thing about sanctioning too many Russia is that there's a lot of Russian oligarchs that own a lot of real estate and assets in the UK, mm -hmm. like um, like a lot of Eastern European countries. It's like a playbook to buy real estate and, and assets in the UK. Like um, right now, um, the owner of Chelsea is in the news, uh, Roman uh, Abr Abr excuse me, um, Abramovich. He is in the news right now. They're saying that they're, you know, he could possibly face uh, uh, sanctions, but I, I highly doubt it. I, I mean, there's just really not that much sanction damage you could really do to them. I think that's why it just seems so underwhelming. Yeah, and, and it's, just, it's just like obvious, and, and apparently there's more, right? So Biden said, as Russia contemplates its next move, we have our next move prepared as well. And he also said, Russia will pay an even steeper price if it continues its aggression, including additional sanctions. And I'm just like thinking about the ones that they've already put in place. And it's like, all right, well, 
Are you just going to name a bunch of other Russian elites that I don't know about? And you're just going to sanction them? Like, how is it, you know, and maybe it's just my, my ignorance on, you know, economics, but it seems to me that the immediate impacts of sanctioning both Russian state entities and Russian people isn't necessarily very painful, at least in the immediate term. Like, sure, over time, it's probably going to hurt. But like right now, what is it doing right now? <laughs> you know, I can even make the same argument for the Nord Stream pipeline. Like, yeah, canceling the project would suck for Russia, but how's that hurt them right now? Like in this very moment. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's a long-term thing. And who knows, like policy could change. I mean, most likely policy won't change, but it could change in the future. Um especially if a Russian agent becomes president again, like the last Russian agent who was president. Trump. Speaking of him, though, he's he's like, he's pushing it right now. He was on, um, I forget the exact podcast, but I was reading about this earlier. He was on a podcast on Tuesday, today. And, or at least they released it today. I don't know when they recorded it. Um, And he was saying how, oh, Putin's smart. That's a smart guy. I know him. I know him very well. Like he did the right thing. Like, but like, like talking to Putin right now. And it's, it's funny. It's just really funny because for a guy who has been accused of being like a Russian stooge, like way to play into that, you know? Well, I don't think he cares anymore. No, um, of course he They've doesn't. already fa- found out that the Steele dossier was complete bullshit and Hillary Clinton was spying on his campaign. And it's just, it was so discredited. And I think he can say whatever he wants. And last time he, last time I heard him talk about Russia, he was, you know, he was just speaking in his narcissistic language. You know, I was, it's like, I got along with Putin. You know, we got along. I was harder on him, harder on him than any president ever in the world, but we got along. Um, he never would have done that with me, but he knows Biden is weak and old. And I think probably where he was getting at was that, you know, Biden's weak and old, so he can get away with what he wants. So he was smart to take advantage of this, the weak and old man. I think that's probably what he meant. Here's the actual quote, because I, I wanted to make sure I got this right. Um, so he said, and by the way, this is in Trump. So if it doesn't make a ton of sense read out loud, then, you know, it's Trump. All right, so he said, um, Putin declared a big portion of Ukraine as independent. Oh, that's wonderful, I said. How smart is that? And he's going to go in and be a peacekeeper. That's the strongest peace force. We could use that on our southern border. That's the, <laughs> that's the strongest peace force I've ever seen. There were more army tanks than I've ever seen. They're going to keep the peace all right. Here's a guy who's very savvy. I know him very well. Very, very well. So... I don't know. There's just like so many. This is like weird and wrong on so many levels. But uh, honestly, honestly, um, I, I, I don't necessarily agree with that completely. But I mean, I can see it. A lot of a lot of right wingers in America in America are kind of on that level right now. They're I just know. like we don't give a fuck about Ukraine at all. I like know. who gives a shit? And honestly, I agree with them. I don't care about Ukraine. Sorry, um, but all right. I want to. I mean, I care about Ukraine. I don't want anyone to get fucked over, but I don't want American troops to be involved in it whatsoever. And I don't That's think right. they should. But you but, don't have to. Um, egg, you don't have to egg on Putin for it either. So, well, uh, that's kind of where I draw the line. Let's, let's <laughs> talk about that more when we get to this. When we get to uh, his speech. But um, yeah, another thing that I, I want to address some other things that happened. One, 
being that the U.S. relocated their embassy staff out of Ukraine completely and into Poland, and now they're recommending Zelensky leave. That's not a good look, I think. If they... Zelensky's done. I think his political career is ending after this. If he were to leave, he clearly hasn't doesn't really have power. He's like George Bush or something, like George Bush Jr. Mm-hmm. He's he's just a, a a face. Yeah, I don't think he should leave. To be honest, he shouldn't leave because then he'll be seen as a coward. But right. they're recommending him leave and then have a government in exile. So what? Run a government in, from a hotel room? Yeah, nah. That's their advice to him. No. That's not a good idea. I mean, what's the worst that's going to happen to Zelensky? I mean, the worst that can happen is he'll be thrown in jail or put under house arrest because one of the reasons why one of, one of the guys that he put that Zelensky put in jail after he took power was friends with Putin and uh, was um, Putin's um, daughter's gro- uh, godfather. So there's some personal uh, elements to that. I think you just put a, a special forces team kind of near him. And if he needs to get out because they're getting encircled, then they then he gets out. But like, not now. They haven't done anything yet. <laughs> you know. I mean, it's very unlikely that they would they would go after Kiev. Yeah. But um, well, we'll talk about that too. But like, they haven't done anything. Like, like, there's <laughs> they barely crossed into Ukraine. Barely. They haven't done anything yet. Why? Why would? Yeah, they re- they haven't done. They're just putting you know peacekeeping forces in in, in the east. They haven't crossed out of those uh, those uh, autonomous regions yet to right. be really considered a, like a blitzkrieg that would threaten his his life. Um, but who knows I'm, what can happen? I'm gonna but, t- I'm gonna so I found something on CSIS that I'd like to talk about later. Uh, but the the short version of it is. If, in fact, they do decide to press on, it's going to take a really fucking long time for them to get to Kiev. They're not, they're not going to blast right through. So we'll, we'll talk about that later. But he doesn't have to leave right now is what I'm saying. And he shouldn't. So um, something I want to talk about real quick is that did you watch the emergency UN meeting? I didn't. No. Read about it. It was, it was entertaining. To give you a gist of it, the most so most countries they condemned Russia. The countries that did not condemn Russia, they seemed pretty neutral. It was um, Brazil. Bolsonaro is mad at Biden because he hasn't had a meeting with him yet. <laughs> so he actively said that he's like, "All right, screw Biden. I'll meet with Putin." So I think it might be a little bit personal with him. Bolsonaro um, feels left out. Yeah, so he's like, I'll, I'll meet with Putin then. India, China. Um, now, I'm sure China did not... Well, first of, well, first and foremost, when have you ever seen China and India on the same side of something? I know, right? That's weird. That's weird. Second of all, um, China... I'm sure they did not want Putin to recognize the DPR and the LPR, but they Putin has a good sense that they're they, they're going to tolerate it at the very least. Mm-hmm. He there goes another them. third party that didn't want anything to do with this shit. We talked about this when we were talking about you know a 
like a like a new NATO, but for Eastern countries, right? Uh, and you know, one thing that I pointed out is that you know China they aren't in the business of hard power; they're in the business of soft power, right? Their their play is buy up industries in in smaller countries and then you know just bully them around into doing what they want. That's how they get their their shit done. Whereas Russia. Russia uses hard power, like putting 150,000 troops on a border to, to make a point, right? And why that's important is because, you know, if China and Russia are starting to become more buddy-buddy, which they are, there's evidence of it, anything that Russia does ref- reflects on China as well. And so I bet Xi wasn't super happy about um, Russia basically unilaterally declaring the independence of, you know, the Donbass separatist groups. I'm sure they weren't happy about that. And I'm sure they're probably not going to, they're not going to speak out against it because it looks weird, but it puts them in a weird spot. Hey, all, all all the experts from the think tanks told me that once this happened, once Russia invaded Ukraine, that there was going to be a, a follow-up attack in Taiwan. In Taiwan. <laughs> that yeah. they were going to be in sync about this, that that uh, China and Russia would be, would uh, it would be first it would start with a blitzkrieg, the blitzkrieg on, to Kiev, and then it would be followed up by a amphibious landing in Taiwan. That's what, that's what all the experts told me, that this was going to happen this way. The experts are full of shit. And they said no it was going to happen on February 30th. Yeah. That this was going to happen. <laughs> February 30th. Yeah. yeah. That's no, when I'm uh, predicting the invasion to happen, February they're, 30th. They're full of shit, and uh, you know, but we'll know way ahead of time if China's planning on doing anything anyway. So much like how we saw 150,000 troops eventually pouring onto the, the the borders, you'll see the same shit happen on the coasts on that east coast of China if they're trying to move into Taiwan. And, and they're not. Probably, <laughs> it will be the same reaction from the U.S. too. They'll be like, "Don't you do that? Don't you?" No, they they did it. We're going to sanction you, (laughs) you know? What is is the U.S. realistically going to do? There's no military solution to either either, um, scenario. There's no military solution that the U.S. can get involved in 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 Eastern Europe, just like there's really no military solution that the U.S. could could use in, in East Asia. The only thing they can do is put political pressure on them, and it doesn't really seem to be working. Now, one last point on China before we move on, though. Maybe China is letting Russia do whatever they want here to, to make them be the guinea pig for an eventual Taiwan thing. That there's your think tank. Well, I uh, guarantee you that's going to be think tank material right now. Um, when they attack, when they start attack, because I don't think that there's going to be a escalation militarily, militarily from the United States at all. Mm-hmm. It seems very unlikely. Um, as much as a dumbass Biden appears to be, he's not. He's been burnt so much by experience. He's not that crazy. Um, so I doubt that you know they. You know, he's already said there'll be no military conflict in Ukraine, and you can kind of tell that he means it when he says it. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, I mean that will be a, that will definitely be a very strong narrative that now, especially from the Hawks, I bet this yep. will be a narrative from the Hawks, especially mm-hmm. on the, in the Republican Party. You can see that, um, oh, this is kind of off point, but I swear I'll get back to the original point that I was trying to make. 
so there's an article from Responsible Statecraft, um, also uh, from um, The Intercept as well, that go over that goes over the uh, lobbying efforts from Ukraine, from Ukrainian lobbyists in the U.S. And basically, they like rival the lobbying efforts of the Israel lobby in Saudi Arabia right now. Oh, oh really? Like the, the the level of lobbying that that's going in uh, that it's it's extreme and one of the top people that they're lobbying is ted cruz <laughs> and Rand paul sold him out the other day they asked him about russia and he said it's kind of funny you see he's like kind of you no know, it's interesting the senators that are that are haw- the most hawkish on russia right now seem seem to be the ones who have the most business interest in and in, uh, closing up the Nord stream pipeline from from states that have the most business interest meaning Texas. Right. So it was kind of funny seeing him uh, throw him under the bus, which is great now. um, But that's definitely going to be a talking point from people like Ted Cruz, uh, from people like Josh, not Josh Hawley. He's a little bit more reasonable. Um, um, Tom Cotton, um, you know, name a neoconservative Republican right now, or really, really war hawkish Republican. That's going to be the talking point when they start battering them and it's going to fall on deaf ears among their voting base right now. Cause it really seems from, from, from the conversations that I've, I've had from my right wing buddies there, they want nothing to do with Ukraine, but this is going to be the conversation. Biden capitulated to Vladimir Putin. Like he's Neville Chamberlain. Um, also, this is kind of how world war two started. When yeah. We'll get to that it. too. Yeah. Yeah, we were talking about this, not to sound alarmist, because I don't, I'm not trying to compare the two together, because I don't think this will be World War III, but World War II started because, or at least on paper, according to Hitler, it started because he was trying to protect the the Germans in Poland. So it's kind of the same with Russia trying to protect the Russians in, in Ukraine. You know, they say history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. Yeah, well, I don't, I think the scenarios are, are different. However, I mean, there's a lot of elements that are pretty same, like national embarrassments, like, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union is kind of akin in, in like Russia going through hyperinflation and, and um, they're just um, the real poor living conditions and uh, the raping of their countries, industries over the 30 years after the fall of the Soviet Union um, is kind of similar to the story of of uh, Germany after after World War One and the national embarrassment. So you can draw parallels there. Um, but the point I'm trying to make in a long-winded way, which I still haven't gotten to yet, is that this will be the the um, Heritage Foundation talking points. Not just the Heritage Foundation. It will be from like every neoliberal to every neoconservative outlook that Joe Biden he was weak on Russia. He's never cham- he's Neville Chamberlain, and this is going to embolden China to take Taiwan. The world is watching. We lost our credibility, and you know they're going to be talking about raising budgets. Of course, both parties are going to be like, "Oh, this is a great opportunity to you know raise our defense budget." <laughs> yeah. Because, but they're going to also going to be talking about having a harder line with NATO in Eastern Europe, and uh, you know this conversation with NATO with with Ukraine joining NATO 
seems like it's never going to go away now. They're always going to be talking about that. Only if Ukraine was in NATO, this never would have happened. That will be a talking point. If only if Ukraine was in NATO, this never would have happened. I've already heard that talking point. Mm -hmm. If only Ukraine, like all over Twitter, if only Ukraine was in NATO, this never would have happened. And these people don't realize the absurdity of that statement because this happened because of the possibility of Ukraine entering NATO. Ukraine could have been like Finland. Finland does, is not a NATO. They're kind of neutral. They're, but and, Ukraine, and Finland is the happiest country on earth, right? Like, isn't Finland, in all accounts, is in terms of living condition and, and standard of living and, and um, a lot of other metrics, they are relatively better off than most countries? Yeah, no, I mean they, they definitely are. Um, they could have they could have been neutral. And um, it's funny thing about Finland is that they're starting to align much closer with NATO now uh, in recent events. But that that's just kind of complicating the issue. I, I agree, you know. Uh, and, and we can kind of t- maybe this is a good segue to talk about Putin's speech. Yeah, right? let's do that um, because let's, let's, he he let's points he I think he has the other side of that coin, at least for the reasons why all this shit is happening. Yeah, I mean, whatever you say about Putin, he is an articulate guy. Um, he's very well-spoken. He can, just comparing Putin and Joe Biden, it is... All right, um, now you're starting to sound like Trump. <laughs> no, I'm serious, though. This is a serious comparison. Like, if you hear Joe Biden speak next to Putin, it's like there's Joe Biden's like, but he speaks like me, you know, constantly. Um, that's why I kind of have a little bit of a soft spot when he when he mumbles his word around words around. It doesn't make sense. I do the same thing all the time. But when he's um, you know, when he when he speaks incoherently for like two minutes straight and doesn't and, and says things like that just make absolutely no sense, which happens a lot. And then you compare him the the to uh, Putin, who will like quote statistics and uh, quote history books and things like that and. Oh. You're just like, oh wow, that's like a. He also makes a, up some uh, fantasy history too. Leader, and this a, is a a weak old man. You just can't help but make, see the comparison there, and why some right wingers would be like, yeah, I would kind of like that. He's also Christian. He wants to protect Orthodox Christians. I kind of, I kind of dig it, because that's one of the. When we go through the speech, you'll see that's one of the the pretexts or justifications he he said for recognizing the uh, the breakaway republics. But um, he starts off by by saying that um, he goes over the history of Ukraine, which is really interesting. You know, he, he provides the overview of the, his, of the, of the history of Ukraine um, and really the, the modern state going back to the early 1920s and the formation of the Soviet Union. Um, he talks about how Ukraine was a... Hmm, what's, what's the best way to describe this? Um, he talks about how Ukraine wasn't previously a country and how it was a uh, it was formed by the Soviet Union out of what was left from the Russian Empire, and he says that the communist regime granted the appearance of sovereignty within a confederated union to satisfy the nationalist ambitions of Ukraine in other states as well. So the whole reason why you know there was a Ukraine and there were there were uh, was like a Latvia and and uh, other Soviet satellite states is because they understood that 
they had to satisfy the the uh, differences the or that the live people there, there <laughs> but they still wanted to um, yeah. have control over them in a centralized way. Mm-hmm. And this loose federation was gutted by the centralizing policies of Stalin through nationalization because Stalin, what they would do is that they would send Russian speakers to dilute the, um, you know, the ethnic speaking population. So, you know, it's a classic playbook that goes back to like the, the, um, the ancient Assyrians, you know what I mean? Like they're moving people around, moving people around, making sure that they're, there would be no strong um, unity among linguistics or, or cultural identifi- identifiers. So Russia did that to Ukraine. And it's a reason why Ukraine, a lot of Ukrainians hate Russians because of the history of the Soviet Union and, and um, you know, you can call it ethnic or not, uh, culture, cultural genocide. Mm-hmm. Um. And then he talks about after World War II, Stalin, he added to Ukrainian territories lands that he took from Hungary and Poland. And then uh, Khrushchev, he contributed the gift of Crimea in the 1950s during, because uh, Khrushchev was, was, um, he was Russian, but he grew up in Ukraine, and he had a strong, um, you know, he kind of considered himself Ukrainian. But essentially, he says that the Ukrainian state, which has emerged, which emerges after the collapse of the Soviet Union um, at the end of 1991, was created from the top down. It wasn't created from the bottom up. And because of that, they were, they were not prepared to be a state. And then he talks about how, um, you know, they're hijacked by oligarchs in the 1990s, just like how Russia was. And then they were also hijacked by by um, foreign interest, which is also true. And, you know, that leads them to, um, you know, this leads to the coup in, in 2014. Um, and he says together with, you know, with the neo-Nazi militants, they were trying to build a Ukrainian identity based on rejecting everything Russian. And that's why it's Ukraine's policy to de-Russify Ukraine, to, to root out the Russian language and root out Russia, Russian culture, because that's the first thing that happened after, after uh, Yanukovych was, was uh, overthrown. They passed a law to outlaw the Russian language and that's when the Russian speaking east Crimea and and um, the Donbass region were like hell no you're not doing this screw that because those are the people that elected Yanukovych the guy who was overthrown so you know imagine if a voter base their guy is is overthrown in a coup they're going to be pretty unhappy and um that's what leads to I want to talk about this because like there's a lot and this is something that I need your help with here Henry this isn't this is a very selective if not very fabricated version of Ukrainian history and it's, it's not entirely wrong but it's like leaving out so many things 
You can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. And it's making an assumption, and the assumption is that Ukraine is in a state because Ukraine was created by the grace or by the mistake, as Russia, uh, Putin would put it, of Russia granting it, you know, a semblance of sovereignty and, end quote, like creating it top down. As if people who identified as Ukrainians didn't exist there. As if the Ukrainian language wasn't a thing or that Ukrainian culture wasn't a thing. As if the Ukrainian people that lived in Ukraine didn't present a threat to the Soviet Union such that the Soviet Union decided to import a bunch of Russian-speaking people into the region of Ukraine. I think it's so selective and so perverse of a history. And I, I understand why he he frames it this way, right? He's trying to make a point uh, to delegitimize Ukraine so that you know, any actions that the Russians do aren't, you know, don't come off as like this, you know, one sovereign state invading or, you know, being belligerent towards another sovereign state. Like, I get why he's doing it, but it's just wrong. It's not, it's just inaccurate. It's not correct. And more to the point, and I think this is really important for me, is that even if he was 100% right, about the history of Ukraine. And it was created top-down. And, you know, like, Ukraine is a fabrication. It is a, it's a thing now. It's a thing with people who actually want to be a thing now. Yeah, but at the expense of the, the other half of the population. And, and what he's getting at is he's not denying the existence of Ukrainians. No one's d- denying that. What he's saying is that because it was created from the top down, it wasn't like this organic uh, nation that um, it wasn't this organic nation that was created. And because of that, that's why they have all the problems that they have today. That's why they're having a civil war, because it wasn't this organic nation and all these things in there. And basically, he points out that they were victims of the Soviet Union. Like he's not. Um, praising the Soviet Union when he says that. He said that he's basically saying that they were really screwed over. But because of all these reasons, X, Y, Z, the the forced migrations and, and, and um, all these horrible things that have happened, they became a state that wasn't prepared. They became an ill-prepared state. You know, they weren't yeah, ready for that, statehood. But, and that's but why he's using, but he's using that argument. But he's using that argument to justify unilaterally recognizing a region that is legally speaking Ukrainian. Well, he's not using that argument. He's using, he's saying that's the reason why what they're doing is today, because the argument that he's using to, to justify his recognition of the breakaway, um, the breakaway uh, regions is not just because they had a, a, a mixed, you know, a crazy history, 
he's saying that they're trying, they're committing atrocities against the Russian-speaking population in Ukraine. Um, first and foremost, if, if you listen to Putin and his um, his beliefs, you know he we, we've talked about this before. He, he believes in the tribune people. So triune, the tribune right. people thesis triune, is the tribune. Sorry. Yeah, the, the, basically he believes that all Eastern Slavs, so Russians, Ukrainians, Belarusians, are one over overarching community. So, um, you know, Kiev is like kind of like a sacred city in Russia because that was basically the first major state, the first major Slavic state that appeared in the um, in the you know the first millennia, and you know the the princes of of uh, of the Kievan Rus, they're the eventual um, kind of heirs of Moscow and, and uh, you know the the state of Russia, um, but you know Slavic society or these Slavic countries they they started off the Dnieper River in in Ukraine, um, so they kind of hold that as a as a holy place. Um, but what he's what he's saying is that because of all these these circumstances and the nationalism and the outside influences and and um, the the violent history with in World War II that fascistic elements have been able to take over this country and and um, persecute the you know one side the the Russian side and they're forced to to step in you know one of the things there, that he pointed there, out there is my point though henry you know that that's that's what? what i'm trying to get at he's not using this this story this history to you know to 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 make ukraine blameless he's using it as a justification he's using it as just he didn't tell the story just for fun or to like give us all a history lesson he's using this as a justification to 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 impede upon the sovereignty of Ukraine, which well, exists. he's using that as, as he's not he's using the their history as not a justification to impede on the sovereignty. He's using their history to explain what why the current events are going on. So why he's using that to explain why? Um, I feel like we're so talking like, past each other here. You know, like are, again, yes, he's explaining why the current the situation is current on the ground, but he's not explaining that. Just to explain it, he, that is that's the setup. He's smart. He's trying to set the tone. The tone is that Ukraine was not ready to be a, a state of its own, and it got infiltrated by so many other people, and now they're doing all these bad things to Russia. Dot dot dot. That's why we got to go invade. You know, it, like the, the this is the point that I'm trying to make. It, he, I disagree fervently with the idea that that Ukraine was. You know, it, it might have been written on paper, and the 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 you know the the borders were established by you know by a top down. But that that is his arguments completely forego all any and all Ukrainian national identity. And and I'm not saying that that gives Ukraine or elements within Ukraine the right to persecute Russians and to de-Russify. We've I mean we've been pretty hard on on a lot of the elements in Ukraine. In this episode so far, we've spent like 10 minutes talking about Nazis there, right? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that he's using a very selective history and he's using this as a framework to justify what he's doing. Well, let me go on to his speech because there are other reasons why there's other justifications that he makes to to invade Ukraine. Because honestly, after listening to this speech, it is 
it does seem like it is um it's it's clearly a threat of a wider invasion and here here are the reasons why it's a threat of a wider invasion um one of the things that he says is that the ukrainians are trying to destroy U- the ukrainian orthodox church mm-hmm. which stems back thousands of years or over a thousand years i'm not sure i honestly i'm not really sure how true that is but a long yeah, time that's a claim that he made that way and long time he said putin says in his speech that he was going to hunt down the ukrainian nationalists responsible for the odessa fires so the odessa fires are basically ukraine's waco where a bunch of people were burnt alive by ukrainian a bunch of russians were burnt alive and tortured and and allegedly raped um, in the city of Odessa, and it's you know probably the biggest tragedy or biggest massacre in the war. So Putin said that he was going to hunt down those responsible. I mean that happened years ago, um, but he he said he's going to hunt down. I mean that was honestly it sounded like a, a play on on on, on propaganda. Um, I mean Putin's smart. I mean he's he knows exactly how to work the propaganda machine for these types for these types of conflicts. Um, just go back, going back to his, because um, he was kind of given, Yeltsin gave him the reins on the second Chechnya war. And, you know, he used to walk around with the machete and stuff and kind of be that badass that everyone loved. Um, he knows exactly how to, you know, kind of play the media and, and, uh, and. Um, on this, on this specific topic, though, this Ukrainian Orthodox Church thing. And, you know, for you listeners out there, you obviously didn't get a chance to listen to the episode that we recorded on you know, just a couple of days ago that we intended to bring out today on, uh, or on Monday, which was on an episode of Sing and Rain, just to give you a little, a little taste of that for a moment here, Henry, you'll, you'll recall that Singman Rhee used his, his status as the, as a Christian to gin up support in the U S for recognition of, you know, South Korea and, and for, for support of Korea in the war. Putin's doing the same thing here. He's smart. Re knew how think? to work he's, the he's media too. He's targeting the U.S.? He's, he's targeting well, not him. targeting the U.S. I mean, he's targeting his own country and he's targeting elements within the Ukrainian, uh, the, the, the east side of Ukraine at least, or, or even just regular Ukrainians that happen to subscribe to the Orthodox Church or Christians generally speaking across the world. He's he's he doesn't give a shit about the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. He's using this as a as a, a another way to to garner support of a of a of a large group, right? Well, my mom likes him because she saw that he was religious. <laughs> exactly. I don't think he gives a shit. <laughs> Most likely he doesn't, but you know, it's something that he runs on um or it's something that's part of his uh identity. Um, but it's, it's, this is very Singman Rhee is all I'm trying to say. Yeah, it like, is. It is. Can't a, wait a for you guys to listen to that episode. That's been used it's, before. It's wild. Yeah, it's a it's a tactic that's been used before. We'll we'll, we'll elaborate more on this in the next episode we do on uh, the Korean War. Um, but here here is the biggest red flag for me, and this is what makes me think that there could be a larger invasion. He said that um, Ukraine was trying to build nuclear weapons. Did you catch that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'll just read what he says real quick. Um, 
Though, as we know, it has already been stated today that Ukraine intends to create its own nuclear weapons. And this is not just bragging. Ukraine has the nuclear technologies created back in the Soviet times and delivery vehicles for such weapons, including aircraft, as well as a Soviet design, uh, Tachka-U precision tactical missiles with a range of over 100 kilometers. But they can do more. It is only a matter of time. They have had the groundwork for this since the Soviet era. In other words, acquiring tactical nuclear weapons will be much easier for Ukraine than for some other states I am not going to mention here, which are conducting such research, especially if Kiev receives foreign technolo- technological support. We cannot roll this out either. I, th- that makes me think that, that um, I mean, I don't know if that's psychological warfare, but when you make a claim like that, then you're kind of forced to act militarily because if they're saying that Ukraine gets nuclear weapons, that's obviously a huge security risk for them that they have right. to act on. Right. Well, all right. So many things to unpack there, but now he sounds like Bibi Netanyahu. They're going to get the bomb in six months, you know? He, he also sounds like the Bush administration, <laughs> the, you know, junior. They have WMDs, or they're making WMDs, or he sounds like, you know, every hawkish, you know, American politician on you on Iran. Again, all of this is just set up to justify what he eventually does. It's not, you know, elements of it might be true, but it, it it's not whether what he's saying is true or not it's the intention behind it he doesn't give a shit about the orthodox church i don't think he believes that you i've yet to see any evidence of ukraine trying to make their own nukes and and if anything they gave up their nukes a long time ago right so this is he he's they gave up their nukes in 2000 just to give you some some history and that i think it's important one of the big um one of the big um kind of uh, diplomacy efforts efforts after the Soviet Union was negotiating Ukraine's nuclear weapons away. Mm-hmm. And um, it was something that Bill Clinton and Yeltsin worked on. And they, they um, were, they signed the trilateral agreement of nuclear mm-hmm. weapons. And it stated that basically they couldn't, for, for Ukraine to be inserted into the modern world, that would be something they'd have to get rid of. And they right. did. Mm-hmm. And now look what happened to him. <laughs> you know, I think it's I'm way not just- better for the world that they don't have. Of course, weapons. I'm not justifying proliferation. I'm just saying, right? Kim yeah, Jong Un's yeah, over here point, taking now notes. They're, now they're like, oh fuck. Yeah, Kim Jong Un's taking notes right now. He's like, see, this is why we need the bomb. Um, no, it, look, he hits major points. Right, first, he's delegitimizing or at least reducing the the legitimacy of Ukraine as a state, as a nation state, right? He's calling out all the issues that they have. And I, I'd argue my reading of it is that he's trying to, trying to make it seem like they're not a thing, right? But that's my, that's my reading, right? Then he talks about the religious aspect, right? He's like, oh, they're trying to destroy the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. And I'm going to go after all the people who burned, you know, the, the church in, in, in Odessa, Right? And, and then he goes the, you know, weapons of mass destruction route, right? They're going to make a nuke. He's literally hitting the playbook for every, like, liar 
politician that got us into any number of wars <laughs> in the last, you know, 50 plus years. It's, it's, it's like kind of transparent, to be honest, in my opinion. I mean, these guys can't even, Ukraine can't even get into NATO. Right. They're going to make it. They're not close yeah. to. Someone in the U.S. would have to be a real psychopath. I mean, Israel had to steal their nukes. They had to steal yeah. nuclear technology from the United States to get them. But right. I guess what they're saying is that they already have the infrastructure to make them from the Soviet era because um, they had nuclear weapons in Ukraine. It would take, even if they do, even if he's right, it would take so long for them to do it. And it would be so obvious. And there's no proof of this. He's just talking and, and out if of there, his ass. If there, if there was proof, if they really were, Russia would be launching ballistic missiles. Yeah, dude, they would be much more aggressive right now if that yeah. was true. It's um, not. Yeah. It's bullshit. It seems like bullshit. I agree. I think it. I, that seems like complete horseshit. Um, I, I, a lot of the analysts that I paid, that I kind of regurgitate, they're, they're like, uh, yeah, we've never heard of this. No, oh, yeah. So total, they're using that as evidence that okay, maybe they're serious. That, total fabrication. That this is um that that they're really trying to prime the Russian population for an all-out invasion. So that could be. I mean, that's that's the biggest red flag. Like as, as far as like evidence of why or argument of why you would say okay, I think they really are going to go balls to the walls, um, is because of that. Um, they were also talking about getting rid of NATO infrastructure in eastern Ukraine as well. Um, so those are other reasons why you could you could really you know think they're going to do this. Um, well, I want to talk to you about something that I want to. We we recently did an episode of series on the Yugoslavian wars, mm-hmm. and um, everyone's everyone's saying that you know this is reminiscent of Georgia. Um, I don't. I think this is more reminiscent of of the Balkans war. And yeah. I think there's more parallels of um, of the Bosnian War as well as coast the Kosovo War. Yeah, and I'm super glad we did that whole series on 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 uh, Yugoslavia as well because now now I know about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, so just a short story. Um, so after Bosnia, Yugoslavia, you know, our, our audience who listens to us all the time knows about this. Um, or you may know about this anyway, but Yugoslavia was consistent of a bunch of republics, and you know after they broke up, they all went, to, you know, they went to war with each other essentially and got their independence. Um, Bosnia, they seceded from Yugoslavia. Um, when they seceded, the Serb population anticipated that they would be discriminated against in this new state. So Bosnian, um, so uh, Bosnian independence. It sparks an independence movement within Bosnian borders of the Serbian minority. And, you know, according to the U.S., all the support that the Serb-dominated Yugoslavia gave to the Serb minority um, in, Bos- in Bosnia, you know, should be condemned. It was condemned and it eventually leads to a NATO intervention. And, um, you know, this, this NATO intervention... It also is a really important thing to understand Russia-U.S. relations because this is when NATO officially turns from being a defensive alliance into an offensive alliance. So, no, um, Yugoslavia did not attack a, you know, they didn't they didn't trigger Article Five in in, uh, in in NATO. They went and they 
um, you know, there was an, it was a civil war. And, you know, NATO acted offensively to prevent a, a genocide or alleged genocide. Now, um, you know, the question is, is like, you know, who has the right to secede? Like, when do you have the right of a secession? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm of the belief that, you know, secession should be pretty much automatic. Like, I'm pretty sympathetic to, mo- to secession movements. But then it comes the question of when you secede, there's also going to be a population that is going to be mixed into it who may not agree with the secession and may want to stick with the state. And that's just a matter of where you live, like where you geographically are located. So that's when secession gets um, a lot more more complicated. Now, um, I think a better parallel than Bosnia is the war in Kosovo. And... It's kind of like the 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 roles are reversed. So, you know, in Kosovo, um, so NATO wages a seventy eight day war against Yugoslavia to ensure it 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 breaks up, and they wanted the a new state was created, which would be Kosovo, and they did this under the guise uh, that ethnic Albanians were being genocided by ethnic Serbians in Kosovo, and the war was waged again um, without UN authorization and it was clearly a violation of international law and it was conducted based on the principle of responsibility to to protect and the idea that um, you know a major human rights violations justify the international community to intervene militarily in any part of the world and that's kind of what Russia is operating under the responsibility to protect. Yeah, I mean, uh, and and to be clear, it was the U.S. who was protecting. <laughs> it was you the know. U.S. So <laughs> it was the U.S. who was who was intervening in Yugoslavia to protect the Albanians. Mm-hmm. They were saying that, hey, the Albanians are being genocided. We need to protect them. There's a genocide. There's a hundred thousand Albanians who have been genocided already. And, and the Albanians aren't Americans either, right? Yeah. So. That, that even gives it like, they went even further in that respect. And, and now Russia is operating under that same idea. They're saying, hey, there's a humanitarian crisis here. These Ukrainians are, you know, I I definitely wouldn't call it a genocide, but they're doing they're some stuff. They're calling it a genocide. Well, everyone's throwing the G word around a little loosely here. So I mean, doing I some bad I saw a report of a mass grave that was found. And I mean, I didn't, I didn't look too far into it, but, and that could have been, you know, could have been just propaganda, but you know, a lot of the, a lot of the reports on Albanians being massacred was purely propaganda. Like a lot of it was lies, um, about what was going on. There were definitely ethnic cleansing campaigns, but when you look deeper into it, a lot of the ethnic cleansing campaigns were actually Albanian, just not even just Albanians, but jihadist cells around the world. The, uh, that were that were um, were using Albania as a training ground to fight, and a lot of these people were were um, you know they were they were very violent gangs and mafia organizations involved who were um, you know organ trafficking people who were capturing Serbs and harvesting their organs and those were the people that we were fighting whose side we were fighting on 
Right. And um, and in this, in this case, in this case, Russia is saying let's call it let's call it like cultural genocide. I want to not use the G word. I wouldn't call it genocide. Just like genocide nowadays is completely overused. Yeah. Um, I mean, genocide is used on Uyghurs. And is it, is China a totalitarian state? Yes. Is our Uyghurs being uh, forced into vocational camps? Um, Basically what China is trying to do to the Uyghurs, they're trying to knock the Muslims out of them. They're trying to knock the Muslims right. out of them. You know what I mean? Like they're not, they're not actively genociding them. Like the word genocide. Well, let's let's call it observed. cultural cleansing then, right? Yeah, cultural cleansing is a much better word. But the word genocide should be re- reserved to for actual hey, genocide. <laughs> we're um, yeah, we're going into villages and we're killing every single man, woman, and child. Right, because um, that's what that's what genocide is. So let's call it cultural cleansing. Right. I think we can all agree that there's probably a little bit of cultural cleansing going on. Right. Uh, On the part of the Ukrainians towards Russians specifically. Uh, And Russia sees this as they're they're saying, hey, we have a responsibility to protect and an even greater responsibility to protect Russian citizens. Or Russian speakers. Right. It's it's even it hits even closer to home because when we were over in Kosovo, and in Bosnia, none of those people were American, but we helped them. So they're trying; they're making the same argument here, or or they're going under the same modus operandi, right? That's their mo. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it, and it it also it's you know since they're akin to each other, you know they're both Russians. It's um, you know that the the um connection with those people is much higher than than um us with the Albanian Muslims. Now, what's what's another parallel is that to this day, Kosovo is still not recognized by... Yeah. They're not recognized by China. They're not recognized... They're, of course, they're not recognized by Russia. They're not recognized by Spain. They're not recognized by Mexico. They're not recognized by Brazil. A lot of countries still don't recognize Kosovo uh, because it was it was kind of made in this weird, illegitimate way like states other states went ahead and essentially crafted it both bosnia as well as as um as kosovo well let's relate let's relate that's what's going on here and i just looked it up that there's three countries that are um uh supporting the uh or has officially recognized lnr and ddr I, it's syria russia and then no, what I, you Belarus know what syria's not even on there Syria hasn't officially declared it. They're expressing support for it, but they oh. haven't officially done it. You know, so for LNR, Luhansk, right? The people who support them are Russia, Donetsk, <laughs> who's the other actor in this. And uh, hold on, I forgot the other, the third one. But it was just, oh, um, and uh, South uh, Ossetia. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which is itself not like an internationally recognized you know, thing. So, and then for, for, uh, for Donetsk, can you imagine who are the three people who officially recognize them? Same people, uh, <laughs> right? Luhansk, Russia, and South Ossetia. Yeah. It's going to be weird. I don't understand how these states really survive, um, in the long run, unless they're just complete. I mean, look, Russian vassals. 
which right, I guess I, I don't I don't want to pick and choose like who should be um, recognized and who shouldn't right because there there are definitely you know arguments for all sides and I, I tend to agree with you I'm 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 typically on the side of you know if if, if you're a group of people and you want to be a thing and all the people that you have, or at least the, the majority of the people that are with you have decided you are a thing, then who is anyone else to tell you that you're not, right? And, and but, but my problem with this is that Russia has decided to unilaterally declare them as independent. Now, of course, they declared themselves as independent a long time ago, but like... Well, they've been, they've been, they've been asking Russia to do this for a long time. That's right. That's right, but but you know, there's no international community that is like, hey, yeah, let's do that. It's just themselves, Russia, and another separatist group that isn't internationally recognized. Now, I'm not trying to delegitimize, you know, Luhansk and Donetsk here. I'm sure they have very, very, you know, good claims to this, and 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 frankly, you know, just because of the cultural makeup of it, I think it probably makes sense for them to be independent of Ukraine. But with that being said they're doing this all wrong it should have gone by the way of of crimea they should have had a referendum this way at, at the they very have, least had referendums they they've had a bunch of referendums but putin has never recognized them and so what makes they've been putin, trying to they've been trying what makes to, putin want to what makes and, putin and the referendum to, was to wasn't for what the referendum wasn't for independence the referendum was in Crimea was to become part of was Russia. to become part of Russia, right? And then but they I, they've but, had referendums to become part of Russia, and Putin has said no. And now suddenly he's saying, "Okay, fine." You're you not saying yes. Thing. He's saying that we'll recognize you as independent countries, but you're not Russia, right? So have they had they're a referendum Russia, to say that they're, like they're independent? Not. What's that? Have they had a referendum to say that they're independent? Yeah, well, they declared independence after well, declaring re- independence and like doing a referendum is two different things. There's a group of people who are in charge of Luhansk and Donetsk, or at least that put themselves in charge of Luhansk and Donetsk, that say that they're independent. But does that necessarily reflect the will of the people? Um, well, I'm not sure. I'm not an expert on the ground there, but yeah, well, um, that's an open question for me, to be very honest. Because I'm sure, I, I'm sure, I'm sure there are some people who don't who who don't agree. You're never going to get a, a a complete majority. Of course not. But at, at the very like, I it made me uncomfortable that you know Crimea was annexed to Russia but what made me okay with it in the end was that it was a it was a referendum people did vote on it people did vote overwhelmingly to be in Russia and most of them are russian and historically they were russian right so you know when i look at it that way it just makes me feel like all right well they say that they are russian so who am i to say that they're not and i feel the same way about luhansk and donetsk with the exception of I don't like the idea of Russia being the judge, jury, and executioner of whether or not states form or not. That shouldn't be his or Russia's decision. It should be the decision of the people that live there. And if, and if it's true, as you say, that they've had referendums to be independent, and I'm just missing this, this information, then that's fine. But it still brings up the question, the same questions that I have in Crimea, which is that Ukraine's independence, uh, um, their their um, excuse me, their constitution dictates that that you can have a referendum 
to leave the country, but that the entire country has to also have a say in it because it affects everyone, not just the people that are in the region. And so the fact that they're not, that nobody's willing to engage in a dialogue about whether or not Luhansk and Donetsk should be their own thing. And I mean this on both sides, both the Russian and the Ukrainian side and all of the other parties that are involved. Nobody actually wants to talk about what people want and everyone's just exercising their their power over what should happen. And that's what makes me super uncomfortable about the situation. We're doing it all well, wrong. Yeah, I mean, there there were referendums in 2014 to for for their independence so there were votes on on independence in in both both breakaway republics um just like there were in crimea it's just the only difference between the two is that the the russians didn't recognize the referendums they didn't they didn't answer them they didn't say okay um we recognize you now as independent nations but that was under the guise of minsk which was the peace agreement and now that's just not an option anymore um, unfortunately that was, that's, uh, you know, having an autonomous zone there was probably the best thing to have. But I mean, I think I've said this before, you know, maybe it is the best thing that they just break off from Ukraine, but yeah, if this I causes mean, another war, who, I mean, that makes the most, that makes I, the most sense. But like, I just did a quick search and obviously take this with a grain of salt because I'm looking at the third thing that came up and apparently in um, apparently 96% of voters favored the Luhansk People's Republic and when was this? This was in 2014 so May 2014 right? And this was a referendum that happened but I'm also reading that 24% of residents of Luhansk and 32% of residents in Donetsk actually voted so we're talking about not even the majority of people engaged in this vote. At least in Crimea, there is pretty good evidence of the majority of voters actually voting. So we're, we're saying 20 to 30 percent of of these breakaway zones voted, and they voted overwhelmingly in favor of of becoming their own thing. What about the other set 80, 70 to 80 percent? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not an expert on that. I don't know what the exact metric that we should be looking at to really judge the overall consensus on, on, um, secession or complete secession. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm sure, I'm sure there's some funky stuff in that, but it's, uh, it is what it is now. Yeah. I guess it doesn't matter at this point. I guess it doesn't, it doesn't really matter at this point. Um, you know, they, this where here's the quagmire that we're, that the world is in. Um, I don't know, that's pretty much all I have to say on everything. I don't know if you want to add anything. We're almost an hour, yeah, um, forty minutes in here. So I, I think you know I was reading this really interesting, um, and, and this again comes from CSIS, so Center for Strategic and International Studies, which you know take that as you will. Um, but I think I want to talk a little bit about what happens now. And I don't want to put my foot in my mouth and say one thing will happen and then it doesn't happen or say something won't happen and then it does happen like like I've had in the past. But I think it's, it might be interesting to look at because this particular brief... You know what happens when you when you make predictions and they don't happen or if you make false predictions? What's that? You get promoted. You work for the government. That is. <laughs> yeah, right? Well, maybe I'll get a promotion. You work for the corporate press. Maybe, maybe I'll get a promotion. Um, 
No, I, I wanted to talk about this because, you know, I like thinking about the military um, part of it and like the logistics of an actual, you know, like what, what's going to happen now, right? As, as we pointed out, there's, there's some peacekeepers that are going into specifically the, uh, the separatist controlled regions of, of Ukraine. And like, depending on where you fall for the argument of, you know, Luhansk and Donetsk being its own thing, this may or may not be, you know, uh, constitute as an invasion already. But I wanted to kind of look a little bit forward and, and talk a little bit about some of the things that could happen, um, some of the options, just so that we can keep our eyes out for them. Um, and the brief makes two arguments. And the first argument is that if Russia does decide to invade Ukraine, and I think, you know, so this was written a couple of days ago, uh, or rather a few weeks ago, I should say, on January 13th. So a lot of the context isn't there. But what they're saying is that if Russia does decide to invade Ukraine, and I'll use this word invasion as like they go beyond just the um, separatist controlled areas, um, then there are three possible ways that they can go into Ukraine. So they can go in through the north, uh, you know, trying to outflank Ukrainian defenses by Kiev. So they can come in through Belarus. Uh, they can go th a central thrust, as they call it. So that's going west into Ukraine, which is the one that everyone expects. And then there's also the one, the southern thrust. So that's coming in, you know, uh, either through Crimea uh, and, and making a land bridge uh, or um, going across the uh, Perikop Isthmus. Uh, and the second point that they make is that um, the U.S. And, and, you know, European partners and NATO and things like that, if, if we fail to deter an invasion, and in this case, I'm going to use invasion as the sense of like going beyond just the separatist controlled areas, um, that, you know, basically... We're fucked. <laughs> no, I mean, like, there's diplomatic, military, and intelligence things that, that we can do. Um, but I, I kind of want to talk about this. So they say that, you know, the, and I think we all know this already, that the, Russia wants to end NATO expansion, uh, and they want to get a rollback of previous expansions. We've talked about this on the show a bunch. Um, and, you know, what I think is interesting about this is that the former uh, German vice admiral said it best. You know, he said that respect is low cost, even no cost. And I don't think that the West ever intended to really allow a dialogue with Putin on NATO expansion. And while it doesn't justify Putin's actions in Ukraine, it certainly gives some logic to it. You know, the, the West didn't want to negotiate. So now we're here. Um, and, you know, uh, something we didn't talk about about Putin's you know, speeches that he was also saying that the West is probably going to try and find any reason to sanction Russia anyway. So might as well go ahead and take what he wants and do what he wants. Um, and what he wants is to apparently save the Russian people in Luhansk and Donetsk. Anyway, kind of getting back to this. So what are the options? So some of the options that he has is he could maybe pull back some forces and see if, you know, if we can restart negotiations, but that's not going to happen. Uh, he could send in Russian troops. And remember, this came out January 13th. So th this second point is actually the thing that they did. So th they can the Russians can send in troops into Luh uh, Luhansk and Donetsk as, quote, peacekeepers. They use that word and refuse to withdraw them until peace talks end successfully. So this is the part that we're at right now. They, they actually got that one. They could seize Ukrainian territory as far as the Dnieper River, 
uh, and use that as a bargaining chip, you know, or they could just take it all. That's, that's also an option. Uh, they could go up to the Dnieper River and get some extra land uh, to connect it to Odessa. Uh, and, you know, that could be like the land bridge option. Uh, there's a couple other ones that I'm going to skip because they're really, really weird. Um, but, you know, when we think about that, so there are some possible options and they're exercising the second option that the CSIS brief uh, points out, which is to send in some peacekeepers. And maybe that's as far as they go, right? They're going to send in some people and they're going to keep them there parked for as long as it takes to figure out a diplomatic solution. And that's, that's my genuine hope but I'm not going to cross my fingers because I was wrong in the first place. You know, I think that what's important is talking about how successful they can be. And, you know, we talked about this earlier in the show about, you know, whether or not Zelensky should leave. And I think he shouldn't. And the reason why I think he shouldn't is because it's not going to, it's not going to be super fast. He's not, he's not in any imminent danger right now. So they write, you know, to the quickest movements of armored forces in history was the German general Heinz Guterin's punch through the Ardennes and the seizure of Dunkirk in May of 1940, and the U.S. coalition advance from the Kuwait border to Baghdad in 2003. And each of them averaged approximately 20 miles per day. So that that's the speed, the fastest speed that we've seen in history of, of an advance. And now they also point out that in this case, you know, we have a determined foe, which is Ukraine and Ukrainian nationalists, uh, in winter conditions with limited daylight, which would significantly advance, uh, uh, reduce the rate of advance, right? And they, they also write here, and this, this is kind of a cool little bit. So an invasion that begins in January or February would have the advantage of frozen ground to support the cross-country movement of large mechanized forces. It would also mean that operating conditions this is the double-edged sword of this part. It would also mean operating in conditions of freezing cold and limited visibility. So it's now end of February, so we're kind of in March. So we have to look at the March option. So should March, uh, should fighting continue into March, mechanized forces would have to deal with the infamous Rasputitsa, or thaw. In March, frozen steps thaw, and the land again becomes at best a bog, and at worst a sea of mud. Winter weather is also less than optimal for reliable close air support operations. That's so important because, you know, we are starting to see more light, which means we're starting to thaw. It's getting warmer. Of course, it's still fucking freezing cold outside, but, you know, by means of weather, it's not favorable conditions for a rapid advance. So when I think about this, I think Zelensky's in no immediate danger. I think Kiev is probably in no immediate danger. But then again, I've been wrong before. <laughs> you know, I just think it would take a while. And they have about 250 miles if they go the west route from Russia to Kiev. 250 miles is a long time. It would take days, weeks even, depending on the conditions. Yeah, man. Um, I, I don't know why. I mean, he would... If he left, it would just be the. I think it already is the end of his political career. But um, he would just seem like the biggest coward in on the face of the universe. Um, I guess when you say they would go up to the Dnieper River, mm-hmm. I mean the Dnieper River is pretty big. Um, 
you know, a lot of it extends out east into Ukraine. It kind of zigzags yeah. throughout the country. And the Kiev is on, like, on the most western part of, of uh, the Dnieper River. Um, do they say that they would go like all the way to Kiev, like fortify the entire river? Or yeah, just that was that was one of part? the six options that they present, like military options that they presented for them. But they also point out that the the Kiev and Dnieper River crossing are 150 to 200 miles from the Russian border, so it would take several days of fighting to get there and. The likelihood is that they would have to stop and resupply, and 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 command and control gets really crazy in between. So, you know, they, they pointed out, you know, cases of when, like Russia's historic ability to field, you know, um, uh, uh, like projected power on the ground, and they talk about the Battle of Berlin in 1945, which was the largest, you know, combined arms operation, which is you know land and air, right? Um, and they also talk about in 2008, the Russo-Georgian war, but that was only five days long. Uh, and it was half the amount of Russian soldiers that they're, that they have potentially to field here. And then they also talk about Syria. Um, but they, they specifically talk about that the majority of the ground forces were Syrian ground units or Lebanese Hezbollah or just other militia fighters, uh, but not Russian numbers. And, you know, they're pointing out that, you know, if there's 120, 150,000 soldiers that they have to field, right, that the logistics of this would break down pretty quickly, you know, because they're not tested in fielding that many people on the ground for fucking 80 years, you know, or more, you know, it's hard, man. It's, it's not an easy task. And with the weather conditions, you know, it doesn't look great either. Yeah, man, I... I certainly just don't think that a large scale invasion is going to happen either. It's most likely going to be limited to the, to the breakaway republics, if anything. Um, I mean, that's what just going, just going back, you know, when I, when I said that, um, you know, I did not think that there was going to be an invasion of Ukraine, but I also stated the case of uh, Colonel McGregor, Douglas McGregor. And this is what Douglas McGregor was going to say, said was going to happen. Um, He kind of predicted the entire thing. So, um, I guess when in doubt, I said this the other day, actually in our Patreon group, I, someone asked like, Hey, do you really think it's going to happen? I said, I don't think it's going to happen. Anything can happen. But, um, what worries me is Douglas McGregor still thinks it's going to happen. And, uh, <laughs> I guess Douglas McGregor was right, but I gotta, I gotta run. It's, uh, it's getting late here. Okay. And, um, I have, uh, there's babies in the other room. Um, all right, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Bro History. Um, so our next Korean War episode, I guess, I guess it should come out next Monday. We'll, we'll figure it out. But, I mean, who knows? If something else happens, maybe we'll stick to covering this. But um, uh, we'll be back soon. We, we uh, again, apologize for the wait. And then um, if you want to support the show, rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to support the show. You can rate us on Apple. You can rate us also on Spotify. And then if you want to support us more, you can join our Patreon account where you get access to our Slack. Um, anything else, Danny? You want to close us out? Yeah, for sure. I, I just want to underscore that Patreon thing. You know, if if you listen to the show regularly and you want to join the conversation, I can't recommend Patreon enough. As a matter of fact, I had some stuff prepared today 
you know, from our awesome uh, uh, amateur historians here uh, on our Patreon who have been so awesome over the last few weeks, providing so many great materials, write-ups of timelines, things that we really wanted to get to, but just for lack of time, couldn't. And, you know, this is a great way to, to become a part of the conversation. And we take a lot of the suggestions and a lot of the, you know, um, uh, resources that they provide to us, you know, into account when we're doing these shows. So if you want to join up, come join our Patreon. Bro history slash, no, Patreon slash bro history. Man, I got that wrong. All right, guys. Um, that's time. That means it's time for me to go. Uh, <laughs> peace, guys. Peace. Oh, 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 oh